We're beginning 1 Timothy, so today's scripture is 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Good morning. As you look around us in our world today, it's hard to not just feel like things are getting more chaotic, more unjust, more immoral, more out of control by the day. You look at the Middle East and all that's going on there. You look at ISIS, the Islamic State, and the cruelty of their regime. You look at the Ebola outbreak in West Africa that's spreading throughout the world. You look at the downward slide of morality in our own culture, in our own country, in our own community. And it can be kind of overwhelming. And the question becomes, what are we called to be in this kind of environment? We as the church of God, the the people of God, the kingdom of God, what, what is God calling us to be? What should we be focusing on in this kind of world in which we live? Well, today, as you've heard, we are beginning the book of 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul left Timothy, his protege, in Ephesus because he wanted Timothy to set some things straight that were going on there. Ephesus was a city and a culture much like ours. He had found Timothy in Lystra, and Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother and grandmother. And it's interesting, as we'll go through the book, we'll learn more about Timothy, but the Jewish mom and grandma were believers, and they taught Timothy the scriptures, even though dad was not involved. And I just wanted to highlight for the moms here. You may be a single mom, You may be a mom whose husband is not engaged with you, not participating in the spiritual upbringing of your children. But like Lois and Eunice, 
Timothy's mom and grandmother, you can have a huge impact as you remain faithful and just keep teaching your kids to walk with Jesus. So what Paul tells Timothy and the church there to major in, to focus on, to be the center of what they're about, are the very things that we can learn from to help us see what God is calling us to do and to be in the church here in Boise in 2014. The theme of this book of 1 Timothy, as you can see from our new banner there, is being a gospel-centered church. In other words, what does the church look like? What are we called to look like if we are really living out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? where the kingdom of God is really at work in us and through us. And let me just say, the book of 1 Timothy, we'll find it over the next few months to be a very practical book. Paul doesn't deal with a lot of high theology. What he is dealing with is, hey, how do you live this out? How do you live out the gospel in real life? So I think we'll find it very practical and very helpful as we learn how to be more and more of a gospel-centered church. And I'm excited about what we are going to learn together from this book. So let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the scriptures together. Lord, I thank you so much for this book that you have given us. Your word is so powerful and practical. And thank you, Lord, for the gospel, the good news. You've given us life as a gift through sending Jesus to die on the cross, to carry our sins. He rose again. He has all power and authority and he dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And we thank you and give you praise for that. Now, help us learn what it means to live out that reality in our everyday lives as the people of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, let me give you a little background. Paul on his third missionary journey, it's recounted in Acts 19, he stopped by Ephesus. And there he established a church. Now Ephesus was a city of about 250,000 people, pretty much the same size as Boise. It was a church that was multicultural. It was on the coast and they had many traders coming and going. It was a crossroads, so people from all kinds of backgrounds, with great diversity. It had a huge trade economy because it was on the coast and ships came and went there. And the very center of their whole economy, however, was the Temple of Artemis. And you recall from Acts 19 how Paul began teaching truth and the workers there who supported this temple were upset and angry because he was teaching other things than the support of Artemis. People came from all over the world. Tourists came to see this huge temple that was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide. They came to worship. They came to sleep with the temple prostitutes. They came to buy the little idols. We found a number of those little idols. The goddess Artemis is displayed in those idols as a many-breasted woman. She was a fertility goddess. If you wanted fruitful crops, if you wanted to have many children, then you were supposed to worship this idol, this goddess of Artemis. 
The temple was so big and so famous, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And as I said, tourists came from all over. So let me show you a little bit of the area there. Some of us this last October went on a trip to Artemis, and there you see the theater. This is the same theater that's described in Acts chapter 19, where, remember, Demetrius, the silversmith, was all angry because Paul's teaching, if people really caught it and it took hold, they would stop buying the idols to Artemis, and that he was a silversmith. They made many idols. They made a lot of money. It was the center of the economy. And so they had a huge riot in this very theater. I'm going to show you the next slide. But here we are as a team gathering together in this very theater where they sang the praises of Artemis and the praises of the almighty dollar. We gathered and we sang Amazing Grace, praise of the true God. The next slide. This is downtown. Have they, they've restored archaeologically downtown Ephesus. And you can see this street that has shops all the way along, and you can imagine the crowds as they would come. And the, the shops, as you walk down, they're just small shops, most of them, but they have friezes that are, have pictures of all the pagan gods. In these shops, you could get all kinds of things. You could buy the idols, but you could buy many other things as well, as the next slide shows you. This is a slide that's actually in, an, in the pavement, and as you're walking up the street, you'd see this, and you'd see a woman, and if you bring your money, this is a sign for a brothel, by the way, and a left foot. So the whole idea was, if you walk some steps up on the left, you'll find a brothel. So you can find someone, a woman, to sleep with. This just gives you a taste of what kind of culture that Timothy was left in, as Paul left him there to try to make the church understand what it means to be the church of God in an immoral, difficult culture, much like today. We live in a culture that is pluralistic. In other words, you can believe anything you want, but if you believe any one thing, that's wrong. <laughs> we live in a relativistic culture. Everybody's to determine their own morality and their own lifestyle. No one can tell me what to do. And we live in a culture of materialism where what you see, what you can feel, what you can get, what you can buy, what you can gather is what life is all about. So that's the culture in which we live. How are we to live out the faith in this kind of culture? Well, let's see. As Paul introduces the book in these first few verses of chapter 1, he begins by introducing himself, and he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins by introducing himself, which was common in letters of the day, and he introduces his authority. I am an apostle, but notice he didn't apply for apostleship. He didn't send in a resume. It says he was commanded, he's an apostle, by the command of God our Savior. Interesting he uses that phrase, God our Savior. That phrase only occurs a couple times in Scripture. Almost always, 
In Scripture, when it talks about the Savior, it talks about Jesus, our Savior. The Lord Jesus, our Savior. Interesting that he uses that here, God, our Savior. It's just a reminder to me of the mystery of the faith that we believe that you can't define the Trinity too exactly, right? There's what I call the confusion of the Trinity, which is, uh, who is our Savior? Is it Jesus or is it God the Father? And the answer is yes, right? And the Holy Spirit, too. (laughs) That's the wonderful thing about the Trinity. They are one, and they all cooperate to work together. He says, then he wrote to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, he wasn't physically his child, but he was his genuine child because of his faith. And Paul had taken him under his wing and had mentored him and discipled him and trained him up to be a leader. He found him as a young man in Lystra in his second missionary journey, took him along. What we know about Timothy is he was pretty timid. He felt inadequate in ministry. We'll talk more about that as we continue through this book. This book of 1 Timothy was written about A.D. 65. So how do we fit that into the book of Acts? Well, the book of Acts ends with Paul in a Roman prison. And it seems pretty clear as you look at the letters that are written in the New Testament that Paul was released from Rome after the end of the book of Acts. He traveled around, visited churches, perhaps even went to Spain. We don't know for sure. But at some point he visited Ephesus again. And there he left Timothy. That's what he's describing in this book traveled around, left Timothy there, eventually ended up re-arrested, ended up in Rome where he wrote the book of 2 Timothy, wrote another letter to Timothy, and then shortly after was beheaded by the emperor Nero. So that sets the context for this book. So why did Paul leave Timothy in Ephesus? What did he want him to do specifically? Well, he tells us, in these introductory verses. Verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, the problem in Ephesus that Timothy is left to correct is there's some false teaching, some wrong teaching, wrong emphases going on in the church. Two different groups that he highlights in this passage today. The first group is given in verses 3 and 4, the passage I just read. He says you need to counter what they're teaching because they're countering teaching something other than the gospel of the glory of the blessed Jesus with which I've been entrusted. Verse 11. What is the gospel? Well, it's, it's that good news of what Jesus has done for us, dying on the cross, taking our sins so we could be forgiven, be restored, receive his righteousness, and he rose from the dead and now has all authority, all power, reigns on high, and then sends his Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can live as the, within the kingdom of God even here on earth. So what's the wrong teaching that he highlights first in verses 3 and 4? Well, it's essentially adding to the gospel. Adding to the gospel. Teaching other things than the basic gospel. He describes it as myths and endless 
genealogies, endless genealogies. Now, the genealogies were uh, highlighted in the Old Testament. You know, they were important to the people of God, the Jewish people in the Old Testament. But apparently what was going on is they were so concerned about having the right genealogy and the right background that they were endlessly trying to figure out their background. There's groups today, LDS and others, that are so concerned about genealogies. He says they were teaching myths that led to futile speculations. I think what was happening is that they were taking the basic gospel and then they were so concerned about understanding every detail. They were consumed with knowledge that they would explore it and try to figure it out. And, you know, if you read the scriptures, you're left with a lot of mystery, aren't you? He doesn't explain every detail. And so there's a lot that we need to just accept by faith. We can't figure out every detail. But apparently what was going on in Ephesus is they were speculating beyond what the scriptures teach. They were adding to it. They were saying, well, you know, maybe this happened this way. And they were creating myths and ideas and speculations that took them beyond the simple gospel. I think we do the same thing today when we're consumed with certain aspects of the scriptures. Those who are consumed with prophecy conferences and eschatology, we've got to figure out every detail of the last days. But sometimes I think we can get caught up in it. We just keep studying and studying and studying. It's good to study the scriptures, but when we just are thirsty for knowledge and we get consumed with that and that becomes our focus as believers, then it's concerning because that's going beyond really what God has called us to do with the scriptures. I know for myself, it's a wonderful thing to try to nail it all down and figure it all out, but it's interesting to me that the older I get, early in my faith, I was pretty sure I had a lot that I knew for sure. And the older I get, there's the less and less that I know for sure. The things that I do know for sure, the basics of the gospel, I hold on to firmly, but there's a lot fewer things that I hold on to firmly than I used to. Our tendency is to want to get it all right, right, and figure it out. Why do we do this? Well, I think it gives us a sense of security, a sense of understanding what's coming, and also it feeds our pride, right? I, I know the truth. I'm right and you are wrong. And when you live in a hostile culture, a hostile environment, it helps you feel safe. We're hiding behind our walls. We have right doctrine and all. You guys are wrong. You see, there's security in that. But that was going on, I think, here in Ephesus. And Paul challenges that because he says it causes problems. Now, the early church needed to define our faith. There were some early church councils that, because of the heresies going around, really needed to define some things. But as I've thought about the church that I grew up in, and that many of us grew up in in the 1900s, there had been a real reaction to liberal theology, mainline Christian theology. And so there was this sense that Okay, we've got to define our doctrine very carefully and make sure we've got it right. And what was the result? Well, as I look now, some of the theology I was taught went beyond the scriptures. It was speculation, but we were trying to figure it all out and define it. And then what happened? 
people began to divide over doctrine. And that's where in the 1900s we got so many, a plethora, what a great word, plethora, <laughs> a plethora of denominations dividing off because we became so concerned about making sure our doctrine was exactly right. So Paul challenges that kind of teaching, that wrong teaching that takes us beyond the basics of Scripture. The second kind of wrong teaching he challenges is in verses 6 and 7, where he says this, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He says there are certain teachers, certain men, certain women that are, want to be teachers of the law. They want to be known as the ones who really know the law and they're teaching it. And what's the law? It's rules. It's regulations. This is what it looks like to be a good Christian. And they want to be known as experts of that. They want to make sure everybody keeps the rules and that they are the definers of the rules of what a good Christian should look like. It's explained a bit over in chapter 4. We'll, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but let me read the first few verses of chapter 4 where it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's pretty uh, foreboding, isn't it? Wow, these guys, doctrines of demons, this is terrible. What are they teaching? Who, verse 3, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says doctrines of demons are when we create a bunch of rules and say this is what a good Christian should do. Teachers of the law and asceticism. In other words, it becomes, the Christian life becomes all about what you don't do, right? <laughs> I have a friend who, this is an extreme example, but it's just an example of the absurdity of where we can go, who was a pastor in the Deep South, and he explained how he was in a certain county where the main crop that they produced was tobacco. So in his county, tobacco was fine, smoking was fine, but in the next, but drinking obviously was a big problem. That's a big sin. You can't do that. But in the next county where they produce whiskey, guess what? Drinking's fine, but smoking is a terrible, terrible sin. You, you see how arbitrary our rules become when we become focused on rule keeping and that this is what's, what makes a good Christian and we all tend to have our list of what a good Christian should or shouldn't do. But Paul says that, that just causes problems and division. Why do we do that though? Why do we make our faith about rules? Well, because it feeds the flesh, right? I can do it. Yeah, just tell me what to do and I'll work hard and do it so we don't really have to trust God to live through us to, be, to do far more than we think we can do. It keeps us in control if we can just have a list of rules to follow. And it keeps us separate from the corrupt world around us. Huh, look at all those immoral people out there. 
We're not like them. Yeah, because we don't do those things. So Paul goes on to say, by the way, verses 8 through 11, let me clarify something about the law because you need to understand the purpose of the law. It is not to give us a list of rules for Christians to follow. So let me clarify. He says, now we know the law is good. And the word there is kalos, which means beautiful. Hey, the law is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a delightful thing because it reflects the very character of God. But it was never intended to be the way we are to live as believers. He goes on to say, actually what it's for is to expose sin in us. It's meant to be used properly. Otherwise, what it does is it simply brings death. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 20, explains this very clearly. Paul writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But get this, he says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He goes on to say in this passage that the law is given simply to reveal when we've gone off track when we've gone the wrong way. Last week I talked about a trip this summer I made to Steens Mountain where I grew up to an old place we used to go as I was when we were kids. Well, a few years ago, I hadn't been there for many years, but we decided to go and I said, yeah, I know where it is. I'll lead the way. My family was following in another car, my brother, his family, a couple cars behind me. And so we went and I thought, okay, this looks like the turnoff. We took the turnoff. We drove and drove. Nothing looked familiar. But fortunately, I was willing to listen. It only took me an hour and a half (laughs) to admit that I'd gone the wrong way. Typical guy. By then, the kids were sick, car sick. Even our dog was throwing up. So I finally got a clue, and guess what? I took out a map. I realized I'd missed the turnoff by about a quarter of a mile. So we went back, right, found the place very quickly, ended up where we needed to be. You see, the law is like that map. It, it helps you see where you've gone astray, how you've made a wrong turn, so that you can go back and get on track. Go back to Jesus. Go back to him. That's what the law is for. It's simply to drive us to the grace of God. It's not meant to be a guideline for rules that we try to follow to be right with God. No. You see, the gospel says we are right with God through Jesus Christ, through the cross. And yes, we want to obey. Yes, we do good. But it's out of wanting to please him, out of thankfulness. The law says... You better do what's right and you better keep at it because if you mess up, God's not going to be happy with you. So Paul says that is so wrong. That is wrong teaching. 
So in a hostile world, see, the church has tended to do, to do exactly what was happening in Ephesus. We, we want to withdraw. Uh, We've got to get our doctrine right. Let's figure it all out. And let's make sure our behavior's right. Let's make a list so we feel good about ourselves. But think about what that does. It, it builds walls between us and the world around us so that we can feel good about ourselves, but they never experience the life of Christ in us. So what is our calling? If those aren't the things that we're to focus on, if that's not a gospel-centered church like we're supposed to be, then, then what is to be central in our thinking and in our focus? Well, verse 5, the verse I skipped, says it very clearly. The aim of our charge, the goal of our teaching, what all our teaching is about, Paul says, is what? Love. Love. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, Paul's desire for Timothy was to help Ephesus become a church that loves well loves God and loves other people both in and out of the church, Paul implies that the whole purpose of teaching, preaching, Bible studies, growth groups, reading the Word on your own, etc., it has not done its job unless you've become a better lover. A better lover of God and a better lover of others. It's not about head knowledge. It's about changing your heart so you're able to love others deeply from the heart. And notice how that comes about. It's through the, through the three sources he gives in this verse. First, a pure heart. What does he mean? Well, a pure heart is essentially right motives, that our motive is to please and follow God. You see, teaching, Sunday morning teaching, small groups, whatever your own reading, it should challenge your motives. When you read the Word, it should point out to you where you're living for yourself and you're living by selfish motives rather than seeking to please the Lord so that you can repent of it and go back and have a pure heart. Now, we're always in process. I understand that. But at that point, you can live with a pure heart seeking to please Him first. Secondly, a good conscience. I think what he's describing here is knowing you've confessed and for and had forgiven your sinfulness, knowing that you are in good standing with God. Again, you're, not that you're doing it all right, but as much as He's shown you, you've repented of that and you're seeking to give that over to Him and receive the forgiveness of God so that you can live with a good conscience. That there's no sin, major sin, that you are holding on to and won't let go or that you're hiding from others and from God. We're trying to hide it from God. <laughs> and then third, a sincere faith. Teaching should challenge us in our faith where we're not trusting God so that we can have a genuine faith in Him, repent of the ways we're depending on other things and come to Him and say, Lord, I want to trust You and You alone. Just give me faith. You see, teaching should change our inner person so that our motives begin to change and our conscience begins to change and we begin to trust God more inwardly and then out of that we begin to love others well. 
You see, that inner change is how we're able to do that, to more fully love others. So the word should always challenge us and change us. It's not just, gee, isn't that interesting? I just learned some stuff about First Timothy. Well, if you walk out of here and that's all that happens, then somehow we've missed the whole point. The point is that we should learn to love better. Teaching should, as someone has said, well said, teaching should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. So, what does Paul say in these introductory verses about what the church should focus on living in this hostile world in which we live? What should we be known for? You know, some of the surveys have said, do you know any Christians and, and what's the main thing you experience from them? And by far the highest on the list was, I feel judged by them. Isn't that interesting? as we hide behind our walls of correct doctrine and correct behavior. But what we should be known for, as we've seen, is love. Now, right doctrine, right behavior are good things, but they're not to be the main focus trying to protect ourselves from a messed up world of messed up people. And then we judge the world for not having right doctrine and right behavior like us. If that's our focus, we've lost our way, and we're not a gospel-centered church. But when our teaching leads us, and correct doctrine and correct behavior, leads us to love others well, to expand the kingdom by the ways we reach out to love others, then the gospel is being lived out. Cole, has, our church, has always been known as a strong teaching church. I love that. Teaching is foundational to our Christian life. It is so important, and I so appreciate that fact. And that's good. But what I'm seeing these last few years is that God is moving us out into the community. To be a church that loves well, to not just be a good teaching church, but a good loving church that loves people well. Uh, I'm so excited about Nick and Laura Armstrong being on staff and helping us learn to love refugees, Chrysalis House and all the good things they're doing with struggling women, the King's Garden, the King's Closet, Boise Rescue Mission Service, Prison Ministry, VBS, all these. And and I could go on and on, and I'm not trying to leave anybody out. I'm just saying it's so exciting to see how God is moving us into the community to love others well. So the challenge for each one of us individually in this room this morning is, how is God moving me out of my comfort zone to love others? What's he calling me to in reaching out to love my neighbor, to love non-Christian friends, to step outside the boundaries of the walls of our Christian fellowship to be a light for Jesus Christ? You see, a gospel-centered church is known by its love for God and its love for others. That is the aim, the goal that he has called us to. It's very interesting to me as I read ahead into the book of Revelation. Remember the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the very first church that's mentioned there is the church of Ephesus. 
Jesus speaks to John and he says, give a message to the church in Ephesus. This is some 30 years after Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy. And if you read carefully what he says to the church in Ephesus, it's very interesting. He says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, good job, guys. You got your doctrine right. (laughs) Good job, guys. You got your behavior right. But this one thing I have against you, you've lost your first love, O church. Thirty years later, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Brothers and sisters, may we at Cole get it. May we be a gospel-centered church that lives out the love that Jesus has poured on us, expressing that to our community, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Let's pray. Lord, what a great challenge this is. As we acknowledge, there's so many ways in which we want to stay safe in such a hostile, difficult world in which we live, a corrupt, immoral world. And it feels so safe to hide behind our walls of right doctrine and right behavior. But Lord, challenge us to be people who step out to let you love others through us. Help us step out of our comfort zones to be Christ, to be loving as you have loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.